First Samuel chapter 25. We looked at the story. We looked at the beginnings of the story. I didn't read the entire thing, but I wanted to read the beginning for a couple of reasons. One is that I wanted to make sure that I introduced us to the story. Hello again. Um, to the story and to the characters, because I think this is a story that may be unfamiliar for many of us. So I wanted to read the beginning so that we could get some introductions into what was going on. Now, you might remember that last week as we were here together, we, we saw David and Jonathan. We saw that friendship that they had, and we saw them separated from one another. We saw that they were driven in different directions. Jonathan stays at the palace with his father, Saul, who is king. David had to flee for his life. In order to protect himself and to stay alive, he's on the run, hiding from King Saul, because, as I've told you several times, and, I, and I'm just trying to make sure you have this, you don't appoint a new king or anoint a new king while the old king is still on the throne. It's called treason, and that's exactly what happens. Samuel has anointed David to become the next king, but Saul is still king. So, Saul is hunting after David. And in this story, when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 25, we find out that, that D- David, I was about to say Samuel, we find out that David and these men who have joined him as an army, these men who were already faithful to David rather than Saul, 600 of them at this point are on the run, and they've decided to camp out for a time, and they're camping near these shepherds and their sheep. Story tells us that these sheep belong to a man named Nabal. These men, these shepherds, worked for this wealthy man in the area. Our hint at his wealth is the fact that he owns 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. We don't get told a whole lot more about how, how wealthy he is, but, but that's a hint at he's, he's pretty impressive. Um, he is known in the area. He is wealthy in the area. He's the guy who has money. And as David and the army were camped near these shepherds, it would have been incredibly easy for them to steal a sheep once in a while. To decide, hey, we're hungry. These people have more sheep than they know what to do with. Let's just take one or two and we can roast it up and have some dinner. Good chance with so many they would have never even noticed that some had gone missing. Even if they had, what were the shepherds going to do against an army of 600 men? Probably nothing. But the story tells us that they never stole any sheep. That instead, they made a a kind of unofficial deal with these shepherds. They made an unofficial pact that they would help protect them. That they would help take care of them and their sheep. David and his men decided to be kind. And we're told that the shepherds felt safer with the army around than they did before. As I reread it this morning, I I liked that word that they they were like a wall of protection around us when they were there. They'd begun to connect. They'd begun to build this relationship. They had cared for one another. And then we're told in the story that it was the time for shearing sheep. This came around, I don't even know how frequently, but as it came around, common practice was for the owner of the sheep, for Nabal in this story, to throw a party. So he would invite all the shepherds, and they would bring all the sheep back, and they would bring them all to Nabal's house, and they would throw a party that would last as long as it took for them to do the work of shearing the sheep. Now, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, that was a long process. So there's this ongoing party that's taking place. They're doing the work. They're having the party. They're probably eating a few of the sheep. They're also having wine and all kinds of other food. There's this, this incredible feast that's taking place. 
David and the army knew that it was time to shear the sheep. They'd been told. They also knew that the shepherds all disappeared. They liked having their protection, and then they went away. They went to Nabal's house. They went to do what it was time to do. So David sent some men to Nabal's house. Because the army was hungry. So David sent some men to Nabal's house to ask a favor. It was a favor in return for this unofficial deal. There was no arrangement. There was no plan. There was no expectation as to, well, we'll protect you, but only if you do this. And yet when it came time to shear the sheep and a feast was taking place, it seemed reasonable to them. Well, we did you a favor. So for us to go and ask Nabal, the owner of all of this, to do a favor back seems fair. In chapter 25, verses 4 and 6, here's what it says. It says, When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. These men, were told, came in peace. They came and they shared about this unofficial pact that was taking place, about the protection that they provided, and then they asked Nabal to share some food. And then the story says they waited for his response. Now, if we were reading the story right, we would just stop there for a while, imagining what it was like to be the characters, waiting, anticipating, an expectation of what will happen, of how a response will come. At this point, the story has made it look clear that this good relationship's taking place. There's this kind of exchange that's taking place. It's pretty easy. And then comes back the response, and it's not the one that they expected. Basically, Nabal laughs in their face. Who do you think you are? Why in the world do you think that I would share anything that I have with you? Why would I give you any food? Why would I protect you? Who is this David anyway? And why would I give him or you anything? Sounds like to me he's just another runaway servant. There's lots of them roaming around. Those who have escaped their masters and who are on the run. And I am not in the business of supporting them. I will do nothing for him. I will not help him avoid his master. Now I think in the reading of his entire response, even though Nabal says, who is this David? I I think Nabal knew exactly who David was. He called him in verse verse 10. This son of Jesse, he knew about his lineage without having any, without having been told, without having looked at him. Nabal knew who David was, and I suspect he also knew that he was on the run from Saul. I suspect that word had spread quickly. He knew what was happening, and he wasn't interested in helping. It didn't matter what David and his men had done to provide for him. The men came in peace. They made what they believed was a reasonable request, especially in this society that was high on hospitality, on caring for the stranger. A very normal piece of what would have happened in that world, in that society, would have been a welcoming in of traveling strangers. But Nabal said absolutely not. He was having none of it. He was sharing nothing. He wanted nothing to do with David or his men. And he sent them away in shame. Which, too, there's a whole cultural understanding that's kind of difficult to explain how significant it is to be shamed in that culture. But that's what had just happened. These men had been shamed. They'd been smacked in the face and sent away. They got back to David. 
And they told him what Nabal had to say. And David lost it. Lost all control of what he was doing. Absolutely went over the top. He was so angry that he decided the right approach in order to to take care of the response of Nabal was for them to return to Nabal and destroy him and all of the men that worked with him. To attack and kill every single one of them. He yelled at his soldiers, strap on your swords, here we go, we're taking them out, every one of them. The story says 200 of them stayed to protect their gear, stayed to protect the things that they were leaving behind to protect their camp, and 400 men marched towards Nabal and his household with the intent to destroy absolutely everything that was connected to this man. At the same time, while David and the soldiers are preparing... Back at Nabal's house, we're told that a servant had heard about the conversation that had taken place, had heard that these servants of David had come and made a request of Nabal. So he went to the woman of the house. Sensing that trouble was coming, he went to Abigail. And he asked that Abigail would do something to protect him. He begged her to act. And I love that the passage tells us in verse 18 that Abigail flew into action. That immediately Abigail went to work. As the story continues, we're told that she gathered up bread and wine and sheep and grain and cakes. She was preparing her own feast, her own party, her own celebration, different from the one that was taking place with Nabal and the shepherds. She took all of these things for the feast that she was preparing and she put them on the backs of donkeys and she sent her servants with the donkeys and all the food she prepared towards David and his men. And the story says that she followed after them. Then we're told that David and his army march in one direction. These donkeys, all the feast, Abigail behind it, headed the other direction, met in a ravine in between the camp and Nabal's house. And when they got there, actually just before they got there, we get this glimpse into how angry David is, how violent he is in this moment, how livid he is at what's taking place. In verse 21, It says, David had just been saying, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. I mean, he's intent on destroying every single one of them. It's a bloodbath coming David is marching in to destroy absolutely every one of them. He'd been insulted and he was having none of it. And then he met Abigail. The story says that Abigail jumped off the donkey that she was riding, that she fell on her face before David and she praised him. It says she begged him to forgive her on behalf of her husband, to forgive her husband. She said, I wasn't there I wasn't there when your men came. I wasn't able to intercede, to interact, to be a part of the conversation. My husband can be so foolish. By the way, the the name Nabal actually translates to the word fool. She says, if I'd been there, if I'd have been able to intercede, perhaps he would have acted differently. Perhaps he would have done something differently. But I don't know. I'm not sure. I can't ever predict the way that he's going to act. I'm so sorry that this took place the way that it did. He said, but you cannot take revenge. Revenge is beneath you. 
her speech continued. She continued, I, I assume, on her knees in the middle of this ravine to cry out to David, to remind him of God's call upon his life, to remind him that God was the one who was responsible for taking care of vengeance. Reminded him that he couldn't let his ego be the cause of blood on his hands, that it would forever mar his reputation and even his future as the leader God had called him to be. Now, it's unclear in the story. We get no explanation. How did Abigail know all of this? How did she know who David was or what God had called David to or what was happening with David? We find out, we, we know that still some of this anointing that had happened in secret was being protected so that everyone wasn't after David. How did she know? We're not sure. It's unclear how it is that she had the courage to go so blatantly against her husband. An unimaginable act in that time and in that place. But this piece to me is completely clear. Abigail came as a messenger from God to protect David. And David knew that this was true. Because in his response, he didn't only speak to her, but he praised God for Abigail. He praised God for her courage and for her wisdom. That she saved him from doing this terrible thing that he was intent on doing, that he was committed to doing, that she protected God's future king and God's kingdom. David took the feast that she'd brought him, the feast that she prepared, took it back to his men, and he sent Abigail home in peace. Now, there's more to the story. There's more that goes on. It's a really interesting story if you read the rest of First Samuel chapter 25. But we're not going to read through the rest or even talk through the rest of the story this morning. My encouragement to you, read it later today. Preferably not right now as I'm going to continue to talk. But, hey, whatever keeps you awake, I'm all good for. I want to intentionally stop for just a moment because I want to notice a couple things that I think are important in the story up to this point. And especially a couple things that continue to, to speak to the goal that we've had as we've been talking through this series. As we have been talking about the idea of how is it that we can find hints in the life of David and in the stories of David about what it means for you and I to be men and women after God's own heart. David is the focus in our series. David is the character that we're looking at. And he's the primary character in all of these stories that's taking place in this really long section of the Scriptures. As it's talking about David and his life and this transition of what takes place in the throne from Saul to David and then beyond, David continues to be the focus. David continues to be who is being looked at. And the truth is that David is the only person that we find in the Scriptures described as after God's own heart. And yet, I think it's incredibly important if we're going to look at David's life that we not sugarcoat who David was and that we recognize that here and more and more as we continue on throughout his story, we find out that David was far from perfect. That David was a flawed human being, just like you and me. He let his ego get the best of him. He made rash, snap decisions. In First Samuel chapter 25, he failed this test miserably. 
He responded to the situation with anger and vengeance. He didn't stop or wait or think about what was taking place or the consequences of what was going on. If he marched into Ball's house and destroyed everything that the man had, everything that he owned, all the people that were there, he never even considered what would happen if that was his action. He had been offended and he decided that that's what was going to take place. He showed no grace, no mercy, no compassion, no love whatsoever. And as I read the story, and maybe as you hear the story, you can relate to what it's like to be a person striving to follow after God. And yet some days failing miserably. Because some days sin wins over us. Some days our selfish pride overtakes our desire to look like Jesus. Some days, no matter what we desire or what we're longing for or how deeply we hope to be following after God, some days we find ourselves on a different path. Some days we choose to walk a different direction. Some days. Maybe most days. And in no way, make sure you hear this, because you could go away saying all kinds of crazy things this morning. In no way am I trying to justify David's poor behavior. Or ours. In this story, in this situation, David was 100% wrong. Everything that he was doing was 100% wrong. And still, David was 100% the man after God's own heart. And I find some beauty in that reality. I don't know about you, but I find some hope in that truth. The reality that God takes us, failures and all, with the desire to make something amazing out of us. That God sees when we lose our cool, that He sees when our short fuse is about to blow, that He sees when we've chosen the path of sin rather than the path of Jesus, that God sees all of those terrible mistakes that we've made, and that God, for some reason, still wants to make of us something spectacular, that God still wants to bring us back to the place of faithful living, that even when we're headed down another path, God desires beautiful things for us and from us. David was headed down that path. He was headed down the path of everything other than who God wanted him to be. He was deeply committed in that direction, about to do this terrible, unforgivable, unacceptable thing to mar his reputation so deeply that perhaps he could have never recovered. To mar the reputation of God and God's kingdom in significant ways. And yet, he was saved. 
two things that I feel like saved David in this moment. First, he listened. The reality is in this story, Abigail is the hero. It's not David. David is not actually the hero of this story. We need David to be in it as the main character, but Abigail is the hero, and that's not common in our Old Testament stories. Truth is, that's not common anywhere in the Scriptures. And often what happens is when we run into these stories of these great female heroes in the Bible, we have this tendency to completely overlook them, to never tell them, and instead to focus on some other story that we could focus on. Shame on us. Ladies, you need to know that there are incredible heroes of faith in the scriptures that that are female. And I refuse for us to overlook these kinds of stories. Abigail was the hero. Abigail was the one who did the great act. Abigail came as the messenger of God. Abigail spoke the words that David needed to hear to get his head back on straight. Abigail spoke the words that David needed to hear in order to calm his pride and his ego and to get back on the path that God desired for him. And when you and I find ourselves on wrong paths, when we've chosen to run away from God... We have to listen to God speaking to us, trying to win us back, trying to bring us back, trying to set us on the right course. And sometimes that happens clearly through the Scriptures. Other times, God speaks directly to our hearts. Other times, God speaks through circumstances and consequences of what takes place in our life. And there are other times that God speaks through wise people like Abigail. And this morning, I want us to hear this important truth that when Abigail, in whatever form Abigail shows up in, when Abigail shows up at your doorstep, listen. As Abigail brings the word from God. If in your life, you're wrestling with temptations, to cheat on your husband, to cheat on your wife, to be a part of a a relationship that isn't holy. Listen to Abigail. If there's a temptation for you to, to steal in some way from your employer, to steal from someone at work, to take something that isn't yours, listen to the voice of Abigail. Maybe you're considering cheating on a test when you're at school. Listen to the voice of Abigail. Maybe it's when you're making fun of the new kid at school, the one who looks funny or smells funny or talks funny or acts funny. Listen to Abigail. When you are angry at your child and you're not sure what your response is about to be, listen to Abigail. When you're attacking coaches or teachers or friends, neighbors, co-workers, listen to Abigail striving to bring you back to God. When you're spreading lies or half-truths about other people, listen to Abigail. We could go on and on and on in the specifics of what happens in each of our lives. Maybe you have a specific that you're walking through right now. And my encouragement to you this morning, listen to the voice of God coming through Abigail in whatever way that Abigail shows up. And yet we see in David's life, we can't stop 
there. Because the second piece of what we see that David does right, he listens and then he decides to run back to God. In verse 32, it says this, David replied to Abigail, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hand. Hearing wasn't enough for David. Considering her opinion wasn't enough for David to find himself back where God wanted him to be. He had to listen to what she had to say and run back to God. Valley, friends, hear this. Hearing isn't enough. Considering the opinion of what perhaps you ought to do instead isn't enough. You and I, when we find ourselves on the wrong path, And the voice of God is trying to bring us back, have to listen and run back to God. It's in this action, it's in this work that David maintained the heart of God. There was absolutely nothing godly about David's anger. There was absolutely nothing holy about his choice to go and pursue vengeance, to seek revenge. But there is incredible godliness shown in David's willingness to repent. His willingness to turn back, to to, to change course from the direction he was headed, and it's shown so incredibly clearly here. He was headed one direction, he met her in a ravine, and he turned around and he went exactly the opposite direction, back to where he was supposed to be. That is what it means for you and I to find repentance. That no matter where we're headed, what direction that we're on, headed away from God, repentance is for us to turn back and head back towards who God has called us to be, where God has called us to go. It is that call to run back to God, no matter what has distracted us along the way, no matter what we have chosen along the way. And for you and I to become men and women after God's own heart, it means that this practice should be a regular part of our faith journey. That daily... You and I should be walking through the practice of repentance. Sometimes we think about repentance as this once thing that we do in our act of conversion. And if that's true of your life, then either you've gone way off track or you just live life a whole lot better than I do. Because I need to do it way more frequently than once. Not because there's this question of whether or not God has forgiven the sins that come in my life in the future, but because every time I find myself somewhere other than where God desires me to be, the appropriate response is for me to repent and to turn back towards God. So sometimes for us it's daily, and for many of us it's way more frequently than daily. Way more frequently than daily that we have to repent and turn back. So today... Today, as you think about your own life, as you think about your own faith journey, as you think about the road that you are on, what is it that perhaps you need to repent of? What is it that Abigail is speaking to your heart? What is it that Abigail longs for you to see so that you can find your way back to God? 
And then you and I have to wrestle with the question, will we listen and return? Or will we hear the voice of God coming through Abigail and continue to head the ways in which we're already headed? Friends, are you and I willing to become men and women after God's own heart? If so, this is part of what it requires. Will you pray with me? Precious Lord Jesus, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy and forgiveness. Thank you for loving me and us when we are so incredibly unworthy of your love. Thank you for chasing after us when we have chosen to go the wrong direction. Thank you for loving us enough to want to bring us home. God, it's my prayer today that as a church, if, if, if we either corporately or individually, are wrestling the decisions that we've made to choose a path, to walk down a path that is different from what you have for us. And God, I ask that you would bring us home, that you would send Abigail into our life, and that Abigail would help us find our way back to you. Lord, I thank you for our Abigail's their courage and their wisdom. And we honor their legacy today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.